and welcome to episode 68 of Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, from classics to obscurities, from shoestring budget films to mega budget films, from Ina's Main to Avatar 2, The Way of Water. <laughs> I've really not been very imaginative this week. No, but I really like, I think this is the first time that it's, you actually, we have a link that almost works perfectly for what we are covering. So that's really, you know, I feel like it's been a long time coming really, hasn't it, you know? Exactly. Yes, indeed. Um, my name is Michael Brooks, and I'm here with Sam Oliver. And Bill King may be joining us at some point. We don't know. Uh, we don't know what's going on with him. So he might join. We might cop- uh, edit him into this episode later on. But for now, it's uh, Sam and I. Uh, so we could for that. we could try and do it like a kind of um, you know the like grindhouse thing that Rodriguez and Tarantino did years ago, where it was like really shunky editing. And really, like, mm. deliberately bad. We could edit Bill in and get Bill to do a couple of kind of like, no way, I totally agree. And just like really badly edit them in at certain points, just to, you know. So, so we did kind of do that on an episode in our past, and I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but there is an episode, listeners, <laughs> that, you, that is that has happened before in our in our 68 episodes. But anyway, we'll make that addition um, for everyone. Go and try and find it. Listen back to our entire back catalogue and try and find the one that had some stitched in audio. <laughs> Uh, on this episode, then we've got as uh, as headlined a great double header of reviews. So we've we've got uh, Mark, I'm going to be talking about Mark Jenkins' low budget Cornish folk horror Ina's Main, and Sam, you're going to be talking about James Cameron's mega blockbuster Avatar Two: The Way of Water, which I checked earlier on has currently grossed over two billion dollars worldwide, which makes it the fourth highest grossing film of all time. And it's just been nominated for Best Picture of the Oscars. So it's it's kind of hard. A starker dichotomy of films we couldn't have found for you. One that's been released into every cinema you'll ever see, and one that I think has been released into four cinemas across the entire UK. Just in Cornwall. <laughs> uh, we've also got... So <clears throat> we've got our, our second make-believe movie house segment um, in the middle of this episode. So we're going to be talking to Gareth Humphreys and Josh Lawson co-founders and festival directors of Dead Northern Horror Film Festival, which you may remember. Bill and Sam uh, went to this uh, back in October last year, didn't they? And sent it a, a yeah, bonus fantastic episode. Yeah, fantastic little horror festival. Yeah. Uh, but before we get into uh, talking about uh, the films that we're going to review this week, let's talk about some news. Sam, I believe you have some news. Yeah, so I've got two bits of, of, of news. One is some cast a casting guess. And the other one is, to, again, linked back into our one of the films we're covering today. So first off, Michael, I just want to... I want you to... It's probably quite good I'm asking you this, actually. You're geared up for this. But um, recently, um, Ridley Scott uh, announced the main actor that would be headlining Gladiator 2. A young, youngish, up-and-coming actor um, who has recently been discussed on this podcast. Any guesses as to who that person might be? I mean, I didn't. It's news to me that they were even making Gladiator Two. To be honest, until I saw this bit of news that was like, "This person's going to be in Gladiator 2, I was like, "Oh, I didn't know there's going to be a Gladiator Two, but okay." Like, so it was news to me as well. But yeah, what did you say the part was? Um, so it is like, uh, so the film's set like twenty years later, and this person is going to be playing the next generation of the ruling Roman family. So he's going to be playing lead character Lucius, the nephew of um, Commodius, Joaquin Phoenix's character. So it's kind of like the main potentially bad guy. See okay. how it goes. You know? Is it someone who's, you know, a hot new thing? I'm going to go Paul Mescal. Is 
seems to be everywhere at the moment. Bing, 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 bing. Really? Bingo. Oh, wow. Paul Mescal, yeah. <laughs> the kid's uh, on a roll. I know. I mean, Oscar nomination yeah. to headline Gladiator 2. The only way wow. is up for the boy. Wow. Well, but yeah, I had the exact same thought where I was like, no idea this was happening. But, and also, I feel like it's, it's, another, it's a, good, a good example of like not particularly caring about something and then hearing an actor attached to it and you're like, okay, cool. I'm into that. That's a good idea. Yeah. What's your second bit of news? So second bit of news, again, another guessing game for you here, Michael, um, based around the Oscars. Because obviously Oscars, Best Picture nominations have been released and two films that were, are nominated in there are arguably blockbustery movies, Top Gun Maverick and Avatar 2, The Way of the Water. Um, and another nominated director, um, you might have heard of him, a little indie director called Steven Spielberg. Like he did a mm. film called The Fablemans. That's getting a lot of buzz. Yeah, apparently he's, he's a new up-and-coming lad. Um, but commenting on the uh, expanded Best Picture category, including Blockbusters, Avatar, and Top Gun, um, Spielberg commented that there was a film from a couple of years ago that would also fit into this Blockbuster sequel territory that he thinks was unsorely passed over for an Oscar nomination. But he he is excited about the idea of films like this being nominated in the future. Fast and Furious 8. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that got nominated for um, all the awards. They just This next uh, year is going to be all Fast and Furious for every Best Picture nom. It was uh, from 2008, if that helps you. 2008? Okay, Grant's yeah. going quite a long way back then. Um, mm. Oh, I mean, you're talking to the wrong guy here. I mean, my my modern blockbuster knowledge if I'm is, If I'm perfectly honest, I was like, I've got one question perfectly suited for Michael and one question perfectly suited for Bill. But Bill sadly isn't here. So maybe if he can join us, I'll ask him this same question <laughs> and see if he knows. You're going to have to tell me. I can't remember. But I'm going to... So it's gonna... 2008, The Dark Knight, the Christopher Nolan oh, sequel. Wow. Um, that's not controversial, is it? Oh, not controversial at all. But obviously, because it got the uh, Heath Ledger got best supporting, but Spielberg was quoted as saying, "It came late for the film that should have been nominated a number of years ago, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. That movie would have definitely garnered a Best Pitch nomination today. So having these two blockbusters solidly presented on the top ten list is something we should all be celebrating." So Spielberg's jazzed. I mean, I don't. I, I imagine he'd rather win over Avatar two, but yeah. You know. <laughs> The awards in general. I don't know what's your what's your view. There's been a lot of there's a lot of controversy, isn't there, about this Andrew, Andrea Riseborough yeah. inclusion for for to to Leslie, which I mean, I mean we were texting. Don't really know what to make of it, to be honest. We were texting it's, about it earlier, and I think both of us said that like I'd never even heard of this for Leslie film being a thing that was even out there until all of a sudden Andrea Riseborough is nominated for the best actress category. Is it, is it for Leslie? Is it? So I even got the name wrong. Oh, it's something about Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not 100. It's Leslie. It's either four, two, or dear. It's one of those like yeah. prefixes. It's. It, it, I feel like no, Leslie. <laughs> I feel like broadly speaking, I feel like the whole awards season and all the awards are stupid. And there, there's always stuff that feels like it's being nominated because it's ticking. Like you know, like it feels like they're making a whole big deal about like, oh yeah, we're being really inclusive by nominating Top Gun and Avatar. And it feels like, yeah, but you're also missing out films yeah. that are arguably a million times better. And the, the Oscars especially has always been Hollywood just slapping its own back. And it's cool that like, because I, I totally agree with unsurprisingly Steven Spielberg, that, you know, films like The Dark Knight that probably would have been good best picture contenders in the past were glossed over because they were like big budget Hollywood kind of movies. But 
I don't think Top Gun 2 or Avatar 2 are the ones to kind of like break out of that box, especially when you said that there are films like After Sun that are, are like undeniably far superior motion pictures, you know? It's always going to be the Hollywood machine, isn't it? I mean, if a film has just broken the $2 billion mark by the box office, it kind of doesn't really need an Oscar nomination, does it? <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's films out there that are better that need a bit of a boost rather than yeah. just like you know that film that you saw that was you know getting making loads of money and was in every single cinema screen that's been nominated and you're like yep yeah. cool didn't need that you know so we've got uh, got two films to review for you today i'm going to go first and i'm going to talk about Anna's mine which i can't pronounce <laughs> i was going to ask you how does it does, Anna's men which probably is yeah right. so it's, <laughs> it's pronounced main uh, oh. main, I think. Let's go with that. Uh, this is the second feature film from writer-director Mark Jenkin, his follow-up to 2019's Bait, uh, this uh, small indie art house film which was uh, made using hand-cranked 16mm cameras, uh, post-sync sound, black and white, uh, you know, received rave reviews, did really well. And uh, we talked about it on episode 46, if you want to go back and hear what we had to say about it Uh on that episode. This is similarly shot on 16mm, but it's in colour. Uh, it's got this kind of grainy film stock aesthetic. It's, it looks like it's straight out of the early 70s, like it could have been a made-for-TV nature documentary or something like that. It feels a little bit redundant to try and explain the plot of a film which, by and large, subverts narrative conventions, but I'll give it a little go anyway. So the name Ina's Main is Cornish for Stone Island, uh, which is the name given to this fictional island off the coast of Cornwall. And it's very much, it's if you've come across uh, this slightly pretentious practice known as uh, psychogeography, which relates to how place and location have psychological implications and metaphysical resonances, this is very much a psychogeographic film. It's all about place, it's all about location and how that has a psychological impact upon the, the people in the film. So Mary Woodvine plays a nameless volunteer residing in a small cottage on this fictional island. And the film kind of charts the minutiae of her daily routine. So she gets up, she walks to the cliffside to take temperature readings in the earth around a cluster of unusual rare flowers. She drops a stone down an old mine shaft, which is some sort of, we assume, some sort of superstitious ritual. And then she goes back to record her readings uh, and basically drink tea. And the two-way radio is her only companion. And there's you know this intermittent calls to check in on her. And as we go through different cycles of her routine, gradually mysterious events start to occur, and they center they're centered around, we suspect, a large standing stone that is visible from her cottage. So standing stones, there's lots. Uh, particularly in Cornwall. This one, weirdly enough, I didn't realise until I came out of the film and kind of looked up where this standing stone is. This is about five minutes from where my parents live, uh, which is really wow. weird. So I'm now definitely <laughs> going to have to go and uh, definitely. Go check it out next time, I'm, next time I'm there. So standing stones, they normally date back to the Bronze Age. They represent a sort of a, a connection with the dead. Uh, that's kind of what, broadly speaking, what they what they were, what they represent. And so, so she starts to experience visions that hint at the island's historic past, tragedies that may, that may have occurred. So the historic past, the near past, uh, and the present are all sort of colliding in a very confusing, 
hallucinogenic sort of way. The first thing to say about this is that because yeah, because my parents live in the area, I'm very familiar with the landscape. It's always the gorse and the heather and the old mine shafts and the bleak cliffs. So it's uh, it was great to see it on the big screen. You know, Cornwall is not often uh, included in the cinematic uh, representation. So really good to see uh, that kind of landscape. Secondly, I really love the grainy film stock of that period of like, you know, late 60s, early 70s. It's sort of synonymous in my mind with like the, the kind of loosely, what's loosely dubbed the folk horror trilogy of like, you know, The Wicker Man, Witchfinder General and uh, Blood on Satan's Claw. And similarly, like the film just looks wonderful. It looks like it could be the fourth, the fourth of that trilogy, if you will, if you like. And on our first interview segment that we brought you on our last episode with uh, Sean McGeady, he he called it. Uh, he talked about Ina's Main, and he said that it was a very much like an ambient film, uh, and it, it like looked like the sound of like if you're familiar with the uh, the uh, electronic artist uh, Aphex Twin, his album Selected Ambient Works Volume Two. That is what it's yeah. That's very much the. The, the atmosphere of this film it's an ambient film that's up that's a really spot-on description the slow repetitive rhythms the subdued cadences the subtle shifts in mood and this kind of underlying tension and foreboding it's yeah it's very much dark ambient through and through and no one that i've spoken to about the film seems to really have a clue what it's about and i think that's kind of the idea i think Jenkins is aiming to subvert and challenge expectations of a narrative film but also you know challenge you know what the what purports to be loosely a horror film so if you were going in expecting a horror film or even like a folk horror film you know similar to of a similar style to those three that i mentioned you'll probably be disappointed although you know there are it does use folk horror tropes and there are a handful of quite creepy moments and there's elements of, of body horror as well um Nevertheless, you need to approach this with a clear and open mind, and I think a willingness to be drawn into this director's haunting vision. Let it play with you for 96 minutes. Let it mess with your head. Um, that's the best way to approach this. Don't go in with any kind of preconceived ideas. Um, and I think Mark Jenkins made such a strong impression with his first film, Bait. I mean, it was it was such a great debut from him. And to follow it with this, which is if anything, even more idiosyncratic and challenging and artful. It's just really impressive. And it's, yeah, he's, so he's definitely like one of the most exciting filmmakers working today. And, you know, really look forward to seeing what he does in the future. He also, you know, he, 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 uh, did, he composed the, the original score for this as well, which is you know very similar to that Aphex Twin album that I mentioned. It's all kind of weird frequencies and droning kind of loops and things like that so it really has got this foreboding tension throughout even if what you're seeing on screen is a kind of prosaic and kind of repetitive it's yeah it's just got this sinister mood that is just yeah you, 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 it doesn't you know, it doesn't lose it for the, for the whole running time and yeah it will stay with you so i've very much enjoyed it i don't really, like i said i don't really know what it's about i don't think you probably will know. I don't think it's one of those that I think it probably maybe could yield some of its secrets the more you watch it, but I think it's meant to be this kind of enigmatic, mysterious little film. And yeah, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, it's, 
yeah, as you said, it's very, I suspect, quite difficult to find this at your local cinema. <laughs> Uh, it's not had a very wide release, but do try and check it out, and I'm sure it will be either up, if it's not already up on the BFI player or, or something like that. But yeah, Anna's main, a thumbs up from me. I think, uh, yeah, Mark Jenkins uh, gone from strength to strength with this. It's it's pretty cool that like he's come out and done bait, which is, like you said, very <clears throat> odd and unusual and idiosyncratic and very much kind of like him challenging what you can do with the medium and him challenging what a film is and what that, you know, really making something that feels completely unique. And that's the thing I loved about Bait was that it feels, not only is it a great movie, it also feels like a completely unique experience. It's really cool for the next film, he's almost been like, oh, you like that idiosyncratic weirdness? I'm going to turn that up to 11 and do it even more. Like, I suppose it would be quite easy for him to have done a very kind of not standard but like a very standard folk horror in the tradition of like Satan's Claw and Wicker Man and so forth I feel like he would have almost quite easily been able to cobble something like that together in his his style but from what you're saying it sounds like he's kind of gone like no that's too that's not what I'm here for that's not why people are interested in what I'm doing I'm gonna keep making really challenging weird shit that is because I, I I've got tickets to see this the cinema that um my local cinema, um, they're showing it next Monday. So they've got like one screening on in a tiny screen <laughs> next week um, that I've very excitedly got tickets for. So I'm going to be there front row wanting to get absorbed by all of Jenkins' ambience. Um, but yeah, it's just such a cool idea that he's come out and gone, you like weird stuff, have even weirder weird stuff. Like yeah. that's, I really, I really admire that about him. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, more of that, please. Um Great. Okay, Sam, you are going to talk about very different stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the complete other neck of the woods, the other side of the coin to a small indie film not being released anywhere is James Cameron's Avatar 2. Um, 13 years after the original Avatar, here is Avatar The Way of Water, um, which, broadly speaking, in story terms, picks up where the first one left off. Uh, Jake Sully, who is the marine played by sam worthington um who at the end of the first film i my memory of the first film is so hazy i'm gonna struggle and apologies in advance if i butcher any names of the people in this film or anything because yeah anyway um so it's obviously it's set continued still set on the extra solar moon pandora um, and it follows jake sully who now lives um with his family um on pandora as one of the navi uh living with his wife Netiri, played by Zoe Saldana, and their brood of half Navi, half human children. Um and the film basically picks up where the last one left off, but obviously after a couple of years, where a familiar threat of the humans, the sky people as they're referred to in the film, uh come to try and basically run the Navi out of Pandora and really mess things up for them. Um, so yeah, I probably missed some key nuances there, but that's broadly speaking what I got from it. It's about Jake Sully and all of his family working to save the Navi race and to protect their home. That's what it's about from what I gathered. Anyway, so my thoughts on said movie. Um, so yeah, Avatar 2 is James Cameron's arguably wettest movie. 
Um, he's a very wet filmmaker who's made The Abyss, um, Titanic, which is obviously an incredibly wet movie, um, and Avatar 2, um, The Way of Water, unsurprisingly, is his wettest film yet. It's too wet, too wild. Um, firstly, I'd like to talk about the positives from Avatar 2. Um, so I saw this in 3D, um, and honestly, I could not care less about 3D. It's in my mind, it's only ever been a gimmick. A gimmick that at the cinema I went to go see it, I had to pay an extra £1.54, which makes it even more frustrating. Um, but I have to say, Avatar 2 really employs its 3D really well. There's a little bit of that kind of, oh no, there's a spear coming right at the camera stuff, which honestly I love. Shout out to Friday the 13th Part 3 that does that really well. It does a little bit of that, but mostly it's used to kind of create a really great depth and a reality that is honestly thoroughly immersive you do find yourself kind of it does that classic 3d thing where there's certain parts that are really obvious that you're 3d but if you kind of there was more moments where i wasn't thinking about it being 3d than i was thinking about it being 3d which is always tricky for me because i have to wear glasses on top of my glasses um so pandora both the dry forest bits and the really wet water bits they feel really well realized well imagined and utterly realistic the depth in them is incredible you feel like James Cameron has fully realized and imagined this world. So yeah, like 3D worked really well for this film. The 2D screenings are done in a slightly different frame rate, which I've heard some people say is a little bit jarring, but I couldn't really comment on that because I didn't really watch it in that way. But um, yes, anyway, so that leads me quite nicely onto the film's main star is the visual effects of Avatar 2 are genuinely astounding. They are fantastic. You can really see why it's taken him 13 years to do a sequel to his popular film of 2009. Every VFX element is absolutely solid. Um, it looks amazing and is just so well put together. It genuinely deserves every VFX award it's got coming its way. Um, there's a really great bit with what I can only describe as sci-fi space whales, where there's loads of sci-fi space whales. And that stuff is amazing. It's like a like an extraterrestrial episode of Blue Planet, but without Attenborough's narration. Um, it's amazing. And I suppose, I don't know, I'm not a visual effects artist, but I imagine rendering water in a believable way and rendering animals and humans and aliens moving through water must be an impossible task. But this film does it seamlessly and it really... There are moments where you do kind of forget that you're watching a CGI visually effects heavy film and it does feel quite authentic and quite realistic, especially compared to like marvel's slapdash and quite chunky visual effects there's been a couple of marvel marvel's latest stuff especially where you're very aware that what you're watching is been churned through the cgi ringer over and over again apologies to my future brother-in-law who does work for a visual effects company who has done some marvel stuff um your stuff's great but generally speaking it isn't but yeah the visual effects are amazing they're so good and they work really really well um it's also pretty cool that avatar is an original property in the kind of world where I know it's becoming a bit of a franchise behemoth with Cameron talking about making four, five, six, seven, and eight, but it is really cool to see a massively popular book film that isn't just another superhero film or another film about bald men driving fast cars, you know, fast and the furious cough, cough. Also avatar two um, really reminds you of what a great action director James Cameron is. Like he is unparalleled in certain scenes. The final third of this film, especially is so good it's like the it's a really thrilling well put together action 
action scenes that remind you of kind of the great stuff that he was doing in like Terminator 2 and so forth. It's really, really well shot and it unfolds in a way that you can really kind of follow what's going on. A lot of action cinema at the moment does fall into that thing where it gets really blurry and confusing and you can't quite work out who's doing what. It does help in this film that you've got big blue guys fighting against Marines. So that's easy to differentiate your characters there, but it's, it's very, very well shot. And the final third of this movie is a masterclass in like action movie making it's clean it's exhilarating and it's really 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 wet really wet um it's also nice that um jermaine clement from flight of the concord shows up at one point he plays a tortured alcoholic marine biologist who's selling his soul and um and murdering space whales to fund his research and it was nice seeing him i enjoyed i was wasn't nice seeing the space whale murder but it was nice seeing jermaine from flight of the concords i enjoyed that However, and this is the a big however for me, and it's the however that kind of changes my opinion on the entire film, is that I honestly didn't care about any of the characters <laughs> at all. I could not have cared less about the characters, the story, the setup. None of those big blue boys and gals did I... Like, they're all very nice, and I don't wish... And obviously they paint in very broad strokes that the blue, the Navi are the good guys and the Marines are the bad guys. And great, yeah, like, fuck the Marines and fuck colonialism, all that jazz. I agree. But there's lots of moments where they really try and tug on the heartstrings and it just didn't get me at all. And I'm a big, sappy little mess at the best of times. And it did nothing for me. Doesn't help that the main kind of quote-unquote star of this film is Sam Worthington, who, even as a big blue tribal hero is an absolute vacuum of charisma he's one of the most boring human beings i've ever seen and even this where he's been rendered beautifully in cgi and the vfx artists have tried to make him not a charisma vacuum he still manages to suck all of the life out of every scene that he's in his character because he's a former kind of marine treats his whole family like a squad of marine and they a squad of marines they refer to him as sir and he's always giving them like fall out sorry family roll out let's do this which is a potentially interesting idea if it was discussed and developed and maybe used as a piece of character development but it's just not it's it's kind of weird and again just reminds you of how boring and awful sam worthington is i kind of feel like if james cameron could go back and recast sam worthington as anyone else this film would probably do a lot more for me it's also a really forgettable movie um as i was walking away from it like five minutes after seeing it i'd already so much of it was leaving me apart from the space whales the the, how wet it was and the fact that jermaine from flight of the concords was in it i'd or i'm struggling to piece together the specifics of it which to be honest is exactly the thoughts i had after watching the first avatar movie obviously when that first came out everyone was jawing on about how amazing it was I went to go and see it, and it looks good. It looks amazing, but honestly, could not give two shits about it. Um, to the point where I honestly don't really understand why people do actually care about it. It looks good, and it's a really like it's a cool thing to see in the cinema. It's a cool thing to see in three D. It's very well realized, and yeah, give it all the visual effects awards. It deserves all the visual effects awards. But like as a film, especially from a filmmaker like James Cameron, who I know has done some great. really magnificent films that you know i i really care about the terminator at the end of terminator 2 i really care about the i I care about rose and jack in the titanic i really really do but this it this feels like an exercise in sort of look how good these visual effects are and they're great but 
ultimately couldn't care less. If basically what I'm saying is if this does win Best Picture at the Oscars, I'm never watching a film ever again because obviously I don't know what a good film is. Um, so yeah, go and see it if you want to see something that looks fucking amazing. And it, for a three-hour film, it does zip by. Like I wasn't particularly clock-watching, but it's like a like a okay chocolate cake. You know, you're eating it, you think it was really great, and then afterwards you sit there feeling really bloated and you're like, that wasn't worth the calories at all. So yeah, there's definitely some benefits but couldn't really care less about it wow okay yeah i mean you that was kind of a handbrake turn to negativity i thought you were your first half of your review there was sounding pretty positive well because otherwise because um, basically my my negatives all boil down to like i didn't care and i just don't care about the characters and i don't care about sam worthington so it's, and i was like i can't just spend my entire time talking about how much i didn't give a shit about it i'm just like no there is some good things here i want to start with the good things and then be like, but none of that really matters because ultimately a film has to make you care, whether it's making you care about a situation, a story, characters, whatever. If you don't care, there's nothing there. Ooh, that rhymes, which I didn't mean to do. If there's nothing there, you don't. That's ah, pretty great. But yeah. Um, but then that's the thing. I, I went into this film going like, the visual effects are going to be amazing. Let's hope there's more to it. And came out going, oh, there isn't more to it. Okay, fine. Well, yeah, I mean, you can go and see that, can't you? At every single cinema, probably screening about five or six times a day. I'm slightly worried that the screening of Ennis Main I've got booked in for Monday will get cancelled because they're like, sorry, we've got to put Avatar in here as well. Yeah, <laughs> got to squeeze another one I've in. Another, I've got to squeeze another Navi showing in here. Would you say then, if you were a betting man, it, it is more likely that Top Gun will win Best Picture than <laughs> I feel like it's a really interesting kind of those two are really good parallels because one of the things that I loved about Top Gun 2 is that it's all practical. Like they were in those jets, they were flying for real. It's all like very authentic and it's a real kind of like throwback to like classic era Hollywood things where they're like, here's actual actors in actual planes doing actual things and really bringing back that kind of like authentic event cinema, which again, people really loved and was super popular and is probably still showing in some cinemas somewhere. Whereas Avatar 2 is the exact flip side of that coin of like, look how much we can do with visual effects and look how much we can do with CGI. So it's a really interesting kind of parallel of these. those films, I think, represent the two sides of the kind of blockbuster coin. And I honestly prefer top, the way Top Gun goes of doing everything authentically, despite how good all of Avatar 2 looks. But honestly, looking at the list of Best Picture nominations, if either of those two wins, I will eat my hat because... Because I I already think the Oscars are kind of bullshit, and if either if if fucking if if either of those win, and don't get me wrong, I like Top Gun Maverick, I'll, Avatar Two is a decent, is all right, but dear God, if either of those win, I'm going to stage a dirty protest. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on. I'm gonna put my wind my neck out, and uh, you heard it here first. I think one of them, one of those two, will win because I think the Oscars thrives every year on some sort of controversy. And although it's it's generated controversy uh... unexpectedly, perhaps now, but I think you know after the Will Smith incident last year, and I can't remember what the year before that, and, you know the the false what is it Moonlight and oh there was Moonlight La La and La La, La, La Land. Controversy. They need something, so I reckon I think they will. I think they'll give it to one of them just to just to generate all the clickbaity kind of like oh how could people like you go oh I'm going to eat my hat. <laughs> Do you know what? As much as I hate to say this, I kind of feel like you're right. I feel like you, that is a very real possibility. It's just so annoying that, like, 
like when Parasite won and when like Chloe Zhao won Best Director for Nomadland, like those are genuinely like cool clickbaity things. Those are cool stuff where you're like, oh, sick. I really like that a film not in an English language has won the best Oscar and, you know, Chloe Zhao is like the fourth female to ever win Best Director and so forth. Like those are cool clickbaity things. But yeah, I feel like recently they do need to kind of like, right, how can we make people care about this foisty tradition? And oh God, yeah, well, I'm not going to sign a paper saying I'll eat my hat mainly because I quite like all my hats, but um, I'll, I'll be I'll 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 be bloody livid. <laughs> I tell you, if I'm right and you're wrong, you have to rewatch Blonde. Oh, right, Michael, I'll <laughs> shake I'll I'll shake on that right now. Great, we're well, virtually shaking. Oh God, I'm. Oh, anyway, come on, come on, Tar, please, right. please win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so listeners, Bill has joined us late, so he does not know uh, what Sam's views were. So uh, if he does repeat things, uh, that is not intentional. We didn't go That's see it together. Same. We didn't go see it together, yeah. and we've not compared notes. We've actually barely spoken, um, as is our want. So yeah, <laughs> I don't I have no idea. Yeah, I'll, 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 I won't talk too much about the length. I'm sure Sam has, but I think. Avatar 2, The Way of the Water, lost me when a blue cat lizard teenager uh, swam up to a whale and started telling the whale about a boy she fancied, and the whale responded, and it was subtitled. Now, like, I'm a pretty... I, I'll, I'll, I'll watch some crazy stuff, but that really, at that point, I was just thought, no, no, you've lost me here, Jim. You've lost me completely. It, I'm sure Sam said the visuals are awesome. Um, if you're a, if you're a nerd about the technical achievements, pretty staggering. You know, being able to motion capture stuff underwater, and I've seen things I, I've, on screen I've never seen before. Now, having watched it, but it wasn't for me, and I can respect the inventiveness and the sheer audacity of the whole undertaking and you know Cameron every time he does one of these films whether it's Titanic and Terminator he he moves the industry forward in terms of visual effects and he does change the industry and for better or for worse and he's doing it with an original vision and an original story so you know it's not a Marvel film so I've got to give it give it props for that he makes some wild choices you know he has whales that can have subtitled conversations which is just so oddly done and like i think the entire row i was sat with were, were laughing out loud at that point we've just been like this is ridiculous when the whale like the kid asks the whale at one point like oh why why are you in such a mood or whatever and the whale like and then it says my life has been such sadness, I cannot describe it in subtitles, in papyrus subtitles. Doesn't the whale at one point say, um, when he asks what's up, he's like, I don't want to talk about it. In a really, like, like yeah. a moody teen, he's like, don't want to talk about it. Yeah. But like in whale speak. Yeah. And then when the whale actually does want to talk, it just opens his mouth and invites the kid to swim inside it. Which I was just like, don't do that, kid. You know, I've just watched Pinocchio. This is bad idea. But anyway, Michael, remember how I was talking about things that I instantly forgot about the film? That's one of the things one, I instantly that was that happened. An odd moment. Him. That was an odd moment. He swims inside the mouth and he like links with its tonsils or something, and then he just like sees the past. I don't know, but yeah, that's a wild swing from Cameron. Another wild swing. I want Sigourney Weaver in this. Oh, but she died in the last one. Let's just cast her as a teenage girl with a sixty-six-year-old woman's voice who smokes. I just that's fine do it um let's have Stephen Lang back yeah why I don't I can't really remember why he's back but he's a navvy now so that's interesting um 
yeah, the story's relatively simple, isn't it? It's just like a revenge story. So Quaritch is back and he's chasing Jake and Jake has to leave the people he was ensconced with at the end of the first one. So he goes and joins a, a water clan. But then I think for a simple a story that's so simple, it's so, so, so long and uncomfortably so. And then again, I feel ridiculous saying this because of what Michael's been through. But I was I was shifting in my seat and thinking this is getting, I'm really uncomfortable. I went to see it in an Odeon as well because I went to see it in 3D. Um, and my auntie brought her 3D glasses, which she kept from the time she went to see Avatar with me the first time, which I was back in uni. That was years ago. So I was, I had them on and I was like, are these still working? Or are these like really dusty? Or is this just how it looks? Um, but yeah, for a story so simple, it just drags because the entire middle act really tested me because it was just, it just seemed like Jim Cameron wanted to show us these crazy fish he'd imagined um, and, and be like, look, here's another fish. Here's a fish. When you put it on your back, it turns into angel wings. I don't know why. Um, you know, here's a shark that, that has mouth like Predator. Cool, but fucking hell, this is going on. So yeah, the middle act really sagged and I was waiting for the inevitable confrontation. And I was kind of like just getting more and more annoyed in the middle act because I was just thinking this is just a waste of my time now. But then, to be fair, when the final act came on, it reminded me that Cameron can direct stuff because the, the last bit was quite thrilling. I enjoyed the action stuff. It, it, was, it was kind of like a cool mix between Titanic and Aliens. Um, and I was just like, yeah, James Cameron can direct. This is cool. There's a whale. It's like Moby Dick. Weird Moby Dick sort of story comes into it where the whale's just attacking ships and, and, there's, and there's marines running everywhere and, and cat people jumping. It, Kate Winslet's there. It, it, the water's flooding everywhere. I was like, "This is this is this is getting me. I'm liking this." But I think Wait, Kate Winslet wasn't actually there, was she? She's in it. Yeah, is she? Yeah, she's in it. Who she, was Kate Winslet? She plays the pregnant woman that's a bit standoffish. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I had no to be fair, fucking Sam, idea. She's blue. <laughs> She's like a blue. Did you actually watch this film, sir? Fucking <laughs> I, whoa, whoosh, absolutely no idea that happened. Fucking yeah. In my defence, everyone's a big blue like cat yeah. alien, but yeah. God, no. I sorry, Kate Winslet. Yeah, yeah, she's in it. She's there. She's fully there. Yeah, so she's got the record oh. now for um, the longest performance <laughs> underwater without uh, breathing apparatus. Weirdly, I did know that, but I somehow <laughs> totally didn't then just... clock those two whoosh, together. Whoosh. Wow. <laughs> So, Thanks, James Cameron. Good. I'm glad I've added something to your review because presumably Kate Winslet was missing from her performance was missing. From <laughs> so yeah, the the last bit it reminded me why Cameron is the king of that sort of thing because it was it was thrilling nonstop and even um, I don't want to spoil too much um, because I presumably well it's made over two billion so a lot of our listeners are probably either gone to see it or planning to go see it. Um, I thought that one particular. Um, event that happened where a, where a uh, character character dies really went into quite challenging territory for another character and it went into an understandably morally murky direction which i was like quite this is this is actually good this has actually got some meat to it this is this is a story worth telling it's just a shame that that all came within the span of about 15 minutes at the end of a 3 hour film which i think is just bad script writing basically but i thought that whole side of it um which is all about well typical cameron themes of motherhood and and um you know maternal rage was really interesting and and 
I, I thought if they if they could have just concentrated on that a little bit more, rather than the whole thing Cameron wants to do about exploring new locales under the water and here's another fish and here's another weird bioluminescent LSD tree. Let's just park all that and, and let's concentrate on what you do really well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think I'll ever watch the film again. Um, I, I think I'm done with that. I'm not certain I'll go and see the next one. Um, but it was an experience. It was nice to go and watch a completely original um, vision on the screen in a blockbuster. But, yeah, it very much akin to the first um doesn't doesn't change things so if you didn't like the first you'll hate this even more <laughs> apart from because apart from in my review i really went to town on how fucking boring sam worthington is but other than that we were remarkably similar in our Good. views so that's Good. nice you yeah. know remarkably similar yeah yeah, Sam Worthington, a bit boring, but I find him a little bit interesting because his voiceover keeps straying from American to Australian. So that kept me on my toes. I was like, oh, oh, going a bit Aussie there, going a bit Aussie there, bring it on home. So that was that kept it interesting. I think during that, I just was thinking about how fucking boring he is. Um, so I couldn't even... <laughs> it also just feels like such a lazy thing of like, I always find like in films where they're just sort of like, and now we'll have someone explain everything that's happening rather than just like show it or tell it. We'll just be like, okay, he's doing this. We're doing this. This is now happening. Let's move on. And also, yeah, especially yeah, when I'm it was like so overdone as well. Like when the guy shook his hand and was like, welcome to our clan. And then the voiceover was like, so there it was. I was part of the clan. I was like, well, I've just seen yeah. that. Like fucking hell, mate. Don't you spell yeah. it out for me. It just happened. Like you... <laughs> so the other thing that you missed, Bill, is that, uh, we were having a little talk about uh, the Oscar nomination for Best Picture right. that it's received. Sam said that uh, if this wins, he will eat interesting or I something mean... up to that effect. Uh, and I and I then put my winded my neck out and said that I think it, either this or Top Gun Two will win Best Picture because the Oscars need they love to have a bit of a clickbait fuel the I, I'm fuel glad the to agree with you, man. Uh, I'm so glad they to may give it to because... so. So what we so what we agreed was, and Sam has agreed to this vir- with a virtual handshake, that if I'm right and Avatar two or Top Gun two win, he has to rewatch Blind. Ah <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, now we got some real stakes. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> the, the more the more oh, I, I think about it, I might actually watch the Oscars this year. I'm actually excited yeah. now. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to not watch it, and I'll have to wake up to like the notification on my phone to just be like either. Thumbs up or thumbs down to having to goddamn rewatch Blonde. Um, and now I agreed to it in a very kind of like heated moment. And now the more I think about it, the more Michael made a very good point about the Oscars desperately searching for clickbaity headlines. Mm-hmm. And a Top Gun two or an Avatar two winning Best Picture is ultimately. I think as so. well. I think as well. They're trying to um, be more populist as well. They're trying to make themselves yeah. more like the Global Glo- um, Golden Globes or the Emmys or something, where they are trying to put these big blockbusters in. And you know, never bet against Jim Cameron. Like he, he, everyone was saying this would flop, and it's becoming the biggest film ever, possibly. Um, I don't think bet against it. I think you're going to be sat there watching Blonde, mate. I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now it's time for our second instalment of the new segment that we're calling Make Believe Movie House. This is a series of conversations with special guests, and uh, on this episode, we are very pleased to welcome Gareth Humphreys and Josh Lawson, co-founders and festival directors at Dead Northern 
horror film festival. Uh, they put on horror and fantasy film events based up in uh, North Yorkshire. Um, and regular listeners will remember uh, my co-hosts, Bill and Sam. They went along to the festival uh, last year. It was October, I believe. And uh, we recorded a special bonus episode uh, all about that. Uh, and yeah, they had uh, nothing but great things to say about their experiences. So Gareth, Josh, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Before we get into talking about films, just do you want to tell us a little bit about how you guys came to start the festival? How did it How did it happen? How did it get off the ground? So uh, Josh, uh, Rick, who's not with us this evening, um, and myself, um, we are group, um, in a group of roundtable in Harrogate. Uh, it's a national um, sort of lads group. Um, and we put on a charity beer festival every year in March. Um, uh, Josh, this particular year, um, was the chairman. Um, after we'd finished, we had a successful uh, weekend, raised uh, quite a lot of money for local charities, and um, we'd uh, had a good time doing it as well. And you know, we sat down in the pub afterwards and we thought, you know, we, we can put on an event. You know, we, this is obvious. I mean, it's 3,000 people come through the beer festival. Um, like, what, what would be cool to do? that's not a charity beer festival basically and, uh pretty much uh all together at the same time oh again like, you know, a horror film festival would be quite cool um so we sort of put our heads together and um this was 2019 and uh, we got in contact with a local church an absolutely stunning building um and put the idea that we would put this uh, horror film festival on in their church which at first we thought oh, that's just going to get thrown straight out um <laughs> They were quite receptive to the idea and um, I said, you know, we're quite happy for you to come along and play these movies. Um, we just want you to be a bit more respectful about what kind of movies you're going to be playing. So there was no sort of spiritual horror movies and no exorcist being projected <laughs> onto the screen or anything like that, um, which is cool because we, we're not trying to be a particularly controversial film festival. Um, we're just, it's, it's about having fun and, and a community for us as, as opposed to, you know, shock and awe kind of yeah. scenario. But um, so we went in there, we played a few old classics because at this point we hadn't even um, sort of been taking submissions from filmmakers. Um, so it was just old classics in there. I mean, um, we had the Lost Boys in on the Sunday afternoon, um, lit the church up all red inside. Um, see some of the photographs on our website. It was absolutely stunning in there. Um, and then a big part of our, our festival is to sort of include live entertainment. Um, so we had a three-course meal, and um, while while everybody was eating, we had um, live acoustic versions of um, horror movies, sort of iconic soundtracks, and this beautiful church all lit up and candelabras across the tables. Um, and, and that was a huge success. From there, we were sort of... Um, I spoke to other festivals about how how they run the day to day and how they get submissions from sort of new films, um, and then Dead Northern, as it is now, was sort of born in in twenty 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 um, at the same time as COVID. Um, so <laughs> time to start an uh, events company. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're really going for the whole. It's not just enough to just get people in a room and get a film on but you're going for the full like you know full package which uh, yeah sounds really special yeah I think, I think as well people demand a lot for their monies nowadays i think um obviously cinema attendance has declined over the years and i think in terms of if you want to have a night out or a day out or a weekend out then you need to be offering something more than just you know a, a movie it has to 
you know, at the very least, you kind of want to have some representation from the filmmakers there so people could interact with them, you know, which obviously is a great part of the film festival kind of, kind of, uh, yeah, the, you know, the circuit. So, so yeah, no, I think our, our kind of motto was always to put the festival into, into the horror film festival. And hopefully, yeah, we're starting to do that now, which is great. Excellent. And you're presumably in the planning for 2023's festival. Is that going to be in October again, is it? Uh, end of September, early October. Yeah. The weekend crosses over this year. So, um, yeah, I mean, originally we started out at Halloween um, and then realised that we were picking the time that everybody that's not even horror related um, was doing horror stuff. So we just created loads of competition for ourselves then, which uh, isn't the wisest move. But um, we've ummed and hard about another Halloween event um, since then, but um, not a lot's happened. In fact, we've done more Friday the 13th events now haven't we, than we have yeah. Halloween events. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. All right, so um, let's get into talking about films. So, I mean, the church that you've mentioned sounds pretty good, but is there a is there a cinema that's particularly close to your, you guys' hearts? Yeah. So, well, our home for the festival, I suppose, for the last couple of years has been the the Picture House Cinema in York, which is an amazing venue and a great hub for kind of the north, I suppose, is being accessible for kind of filmmakers to travel from a bit further away as well. Um, and they've been very supportive, kind of into every weird and wonderful idea we want to do, including the events. And this year we, we did um, a seance in the cinema. Uh, I think that might be certainly a, a national first or a UK first. But yeah, so and they kind of just roll with it and like, yeah, wh- whatever you want to do. And I think they just like like having uh, our crowd come to the cinema and kind of and, and yeah, fill the place with full of weird stuff for the weekend. Amazing. And um, all right, so you you're walking through the lobby. What snacks are you getting, if any? What do you go for? Oh, that's a good question. I've not got a sweet tooth, so I'd always be savoury confectories. I'm kind of like a, a nachos hot dog type dude. Um, I think Gareth's got more of a sweet tooth than me. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I try not to. Um, I do like a bag of peanut M and M's. Good choice. Good choice. Uh, and what kind of cinema goer are you both? Do you? Do you get there in advance for all the ads on the trailers, or are you one of those people who rocks up just in time and everyone has to stand up in the row to let you through as you see? <laughs> I'm a big fan of the trailers. The adverts I could do without, although um, recently we've been to see um, the new Avatar movie with my son, and uh, he gets quite excited with the Jaguar adverts where they show off the surround sound, the, uh, <laughs> the eight running around the cinema. It's a great, it's a great marketing tool, but... And, uh, one thing that will be sorely missed when all the cars go electric is the sound. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm turn up. I'm, for everything, I turn up half an hour too early. Um, get my drinks in. I'll be the first one sat in the cinema pretty much every every time. <laughs> and talking about, so do you have a seating preference? Is there a row or a position that you tend to go for over time, or or not? I'd say front front middle is a good good spot towards the front. Maybe yeah, classic. But yeah. As central as you can get, ideally. Yeah, I agree there. Um, some I don't like being stuck in a corner. Um, if it's a screen that say has got a wall, I hate the uh, sort of claustrophobic feeling. Oh I'm yeah, they're bad. Yeah, I don't normally need yeah. to get up and leave the cinema, but um, it's that kind of 
psychological. You want the option. Yeah, yeah exactly. Without having to uh, interfere with people's um, watching. Which is why I quite like the everyman. We've got a lovely everyman in Harrogate. And um, it's just really easy to get up and about if you do need to get out. Um, which I guess is designed so they can bring you your food and drink while you're... Apart from the, the one screen we were in for June, actually, me and you went to see June. And uh, the seats are all against one side. And we were like hemmed in right in the corner, weren't we? And then, I mean, obviously Gene's quite a long film, so it was just like a constant flow of people getting up to go to the toilet over like three hours. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, we're going to get to first question. So what is the film uh, that you return to the most often? Well, I, saw, I was having to think about this, and I think there's like, a, there's like a Sunday watching answer, which is kind of anything 80s horror sci-fi, because that's kind of what I grew up on. Um, so like a family friend, basically, who works in sort of art design and designs monsters for horror movies. Uh, he flew off to L.A. when he got his big break and left me as a 13 year old kid with his kind of VHS collection of classic 80s horror sci fi, because that's what he used to like to draw. So I kind of my my first kind of 18s were like Predator, The Thing, The Fly, all that kind of stuff. So I would probably say The Thing or The Fly would be my nice kind of Sunday watching familiar horror to kind of watch. Um, but in terms of what, what I like genre-wise nowadays, like I'm, I'm a big zombie fan, so I'd probably say something like like Wreck or something like that. That's quite like that's a great found footage kind of zombie movie that stands the test of time, even though it's getting a bit older now. So yeah, that's mm. that's something that I go back to quite a bit. Great stuff, Gareth. Um, by choice, uh, movie that I come back to. Uh, that's that's a bit of a tricky one because um, there's kids in the house, so there's a lot of movies that I end up watching on over and over <laughs> and over again. Um, but it, it's, it, nowadays, it's hard enough to to find time to fit all of the new content that we need to watch for the film festival in, uh, let alone going back to watching old stuff. Um, and another thing for me is I I like to leave a big gap between uh, watching movies. I tend to um, leave it quite a few years i can't sort of watch a movie back to back um rightly or wrongly i don't know but um that said um guilty pleasures uh, are films that i do watch um as uh, grown-ups and grown-ups too uh, adam sandler um <laughs> they, just, they just crack me up and I, I think deep down i've always wanted to go and have one of those giant new england lake houses and uh, just uh, chill out for a, for a weekend with a jet ski or something although that's uh, a long way off because they are quite expensive <laughs> brilliant okay let's go a bit darker now so what's a film that has scared or and or disturbed you the most um i think um i sort of grew up in the early 2000s so it's probably not scary. It's definitely not scary now, and I would probably watch it to just enjoy it. But uh, Thirteen Ghosts really scared me when I was like an eleven, twelve-year-old kid. Um, my dad basically spent a summer kind of saving up for some surround sound at home, and the first thing he did when he got it was was go to the local supermarket, see what DVD was on offer, and he bought a copy of Thirteen Ghosts. Um, I just remember my dad calling me down in, into the front room and being like, "Come watch this! Come watch this!" and then. I don't know if you know the opening scene of 13 Ghosts, but it's basically like a huge like 18-wheeler truck going straight through some gates into a junkyard, and it's like the loudest thing to this day I've ever heard. I think my dad had to turn the volume all the way up and uh, absolutely <laughs> terrified me as like an 11, 12-year-old kid. Um, and yeah, all, all the ghosts in that as well. Like It was pretty cool practical effects for the early 2000s. I think they, they put a lot into the design of those kind of monsters and ghosts. And uh, yeah, quite quite gory for an early kid, kind of young kid to be to be seeing at that age probably shouldn't have been watching it 
it left a lasting impression on me. It's more disturbed. Um, it's got to be uh, Bone Tomahawk. Um, uh, I mean, it's a great movie, but the sheer brutality of the violence, like that really sideswiped me. Um, I, I hadn't really heard much about the movie, didn't really know much about it. It was a spontaneous Sunday night hangover movie pick. I was literally like, oh, what, cowboy movie. Uh, cowboy <laughs> movie never hurt anybody, did it? Sat there feeling, feeling horrible from a night out on Saturday and... Um, I was just like, holy shit, <laughs> this, this movie's brutal. Um, uh, but it's a great movie. Um, but a special shout-out goes to a film that I've um, that's disturbed me, and I've never even seen it. Um, it was The Girl Next Door. Um, uh, it was way back. I was helping out at Fright Fest um, in the foyer. Um, so I didn't get to go in and see the screening when, when they were playing it. And uh, the movie finished, and... It was just like all of the joy of the Odeon cinema was just sucked out of the place. And these just faces just came out with these just somber looks on their faces. And for about an hour afterwards, just nobody talked to each other and just sort of sat there in the bar. I was like, what the hell's going on here? I mean, this is an audience of hardened horror fans. Um, and, um, yeah, just to see that entire audience come out, just, yeah, just grey-faced. Um, I've just never got round to watching it, and I'm, I'm not sure that I really want to. Um, you know, I do love I love horror movies, but there's some movies that just I don't really want to be upset by a movie. Mm. <laughs> um, Hereditary, I haven't been back to since I watched it one time round. It's just a bit too real, a bit too close to home. Yeah, Hereditary, I remember almost being kind of, you know, because you sort of, as a horror fan, you kind of get a bit, you can get a bit sort of numbed to it, going to use or or succumb to the feeling that it's going to take a lot to scare me the way that films do, the other classics do when I first started watching them. But Hereditary was one of those in the cinema. I was like, oh wow, okay, you know, I can still be kind of freaked out by something. <laughs> it's quite powerful. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Okay, so uh, what's a new touch? So you guys spend a lot of time, as you said, uh, kind of watching. Uh, watching new stuff, uh, working out what you're going to schedule for your festival. What's a who's a new talent that you think people should be keeping an eye out for? Uh, so it's, it's probably a bit cheeky for us to sort of keep mentioning the uh, the film festival as opposed to other films, but um, every year we're just completely blown away by the the quality of the content that gets submitted to us. Um, it just gets better and better. Um, but at the moment, for me, a uh, big shout out to Alex Austin, um, who directed one of the shorts, Creature Shorts, uh, Sucker, um, and Louisa Bablin, who uh, won our student short this uh, in 2022 with uh, No Place Home. Um, I've got a big feeling about these uh, these two and I think they're going to go on to do great things um, so yeah keep an eye out for those two yeah I think Alex has a film actually coming out later this year hopefully called I think is it Kill Your Lover yes so really. hopefully we'll have that at our festival okay but year. is that a full length is it yeah that's a feature yeah so she had um, Sucker which was the sort of the award-winning tour at this year's festival and then yeah they're, they're just working on their, their feature at the moment so uh, so yeah quite excited about that and um What's the film that you're most looking forward to in 2023? Um, Horror-wise, um, Infinity Pool, uh, which is uh, Cronenberg, new, uh, Brandon Cronenberg's new film. Um, I really liked um, Possessor, um, and I do love like body horror films. I guess it goes back to the kind of horror sci-fi that I grew up on initially. Um, that any, anything with like kind of crazy practical effects, where just horrific stuff's happening with with bodies and stuff. Um, it's just find it very cool to watch. So, um, so yeah, looking forward to that. But I suppose more wider cocaine bear looks pretty good. 
Yeah, that does look pretty wild. I think that's coming soon, isn't it? Um, February, March. Yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty soon. Um, okay, a bit cheeky plug for the festival. Um, I'm really looking forward to what um, treats come over the next six months. Um, there's always a lot of stuff that we have no idea was coming um, from unknown people as well. Um, it's always good to sit down and watch those. There's um, some great little um, sort of, uh, what's the right word for it? treats i suppose uh things we weren't <laughs> expecting um which is cool um but uh, from a sort of bigger cinema sort of look um looking forward to taking the kids to see mario and spider-man uh, across the spider-verse um it's great going to the cinema with the kids watching these movies just watching their little faces are blown away by these big screens and the loud sound um june 2 um uh, I love the first one. Um, huge fan of the stories anyway. Um, really looking forward to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it's really quite cool to see something new and a sort of fresh take on, on an IP that's really not had much done with it. I think there's been a few budget movies over the years, but it's, you know, it's a great IP that I think deserves um, something really good. Um, but yeah, I mean, just um, going into the horror side of things, uh, Evil Dead Rise is obviously going to be a big one this year. Um, and Knock at the Cabin looked uh, quite interesting from the trailer I'd seen with it. But I mean, there's an extensive list of big horror movies coming out this year it's uh, it's quite an exciting year so yeah i was quite excited for pearl as well it was one of those um don't know if you've seen it yet gareth but x that came out last year i was like pleasantly surprised i was like oh this is a uh, this is like the best slasher i've seen in a long time actually i'm quite quite bored with this and that, that's turning into like a little trilogy so yeah i'm going to give that a watch i think that actually comes out this month potentially excellent great well yeah just have to keep an eye out for those and uh Finally, what's your favourite and least favourite film genres or subgenres? I mean, there's all sorts of subgenres within horror on there, but is there a particular uh, particular area you go to? Josh, you've already mentioned zombies. Yeah, I think I think um, found footage is one where I keep being surprised how good it is and how someone can reinvent it. From kind of started with like Blair Witch, I suppose, uh, and then we've had Paranormal Activity and quite a lot of big ones, and then we had like we we showed Host, which I think was the probably the last found footage one that I was really impressed with. I think just because they got very quick to to the Zoom kind of horror thing before everyone tried to do it, and they did it yeah. particularly well. And I think It was very impressive, wasn't it? It was really good sort of reinvention of the found footage, yeah. Yeah, and I think that team as well is, like, they've gone on to do really good stuff, like um, the director, Rob, Rob Savage, he's doing the, the film adaptation of The Boogeyman, Stephen King's new one. And the trailer for that looks pretty good. I just think those guys know how to scare people. <laughs> and uh, it's, there's something about like uh, all his shots as well. You don't quite see the scary thing. You just you get to see something in the background, and it's your mind does the rest of the work. So yeah, yeah. Found, found footage is always that thing that's creeped me out because it's it's the thing you're going to think about when you go to bed and you're turning all the lights off, and you're like, oh, what's going to get me in the house now? Everything's dark. So yeah, I think that's probably probably my favorite. And then. I mentioned X, but I think the slashes, I haven't seen a good slasher other than X and maybe the Terrifier 2, which I just thought was ridiculously kind of gory, and but to like to such a good degree that it was quite enjoyable that up until then, I think slasher had kind of died a death and I wasn't that impressed with the new the new Scream. So, so yeah, I'd maybe say slasher is probably my least favourite genre with a few exceptions. Yeah, interesting. Gareth? 
Um, so recently I got uh, really hooked on uh, Mr. Ballin's YouTube channel. Um, he kind of uh, talks about spooky things. Um, and uh, it does a lot of talks about um, the Missing 411 books by um, David Pilides. Uh, so I really got into sort of road trip, lost in the woods, these Bigfoot, uh, Wendigo kind of uh, movies, um, which then took me on this like rabbit hole on Amazon, finding these low budget um, movies set in US national parks. Um, and um, there's like the witches in the woods, there's a dawn of the beast, the dark. Um, so I wrote a few of them down earlier. So Grave Halloween, um, Dark Mountain um, and the Axiom. I mean, there's just beautiful cinematography in these movies. Um, and it, But at the same time, I always feel like they're, they're cheating because you've literally got these US national parks to go and film in. And it's uh, it's got to be pretty hard to not film one of those and make yeah. it look beautiful. Um, but yeah, I just love that kind of big road trip. I think it's just that expanse of America and or North America, um, these big road trips that go through these huge parks and so on. Um, and, and the other thing as well is that, you know, sort of similar kind of movie in the UK, I guess it's, it's hard for anybody to make them over here and find a bit of pristine woodland that hasn't got a, as the shopping trolley just dumped in it. <laughs> like if, uh, magazines everywhere. Yeah. But um, a big shout out to that kind of uh, movie is The Ritual. Um, I absolutely mm. adored that movie and the creature design in that film was absolutely fantastic. I absolutely agree. I remember being really impressed with that, but going in knowing absolutely nothing about it, yeah, barely any buzz, I remember. But yeah, I thought it was really strong. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed, guys. Really good to, to talk to you. And uh, yeah, so everyone look out for Dead Northern's programming throughout the year. We'll put a link on our on our socials. Uh, you can find them at deadnorthern.co.uk. Uh, and uh, yeah, keep an eye out for when, when do you tend to announce uh, the sort of the schedule and the, and the lineup and when do tickets normally go on sale for the uh, for the September October festival? Yes, yeah, so, so tickets will be on sale from sort of June time, and we'll we'll if anyone joins our mailing list, you'll get kind of a notification when they come on sale, um, and then the program sort of follows generally sort of a month after that, so kind of July time. Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed, guys. Really good to talk to you. Thanks, Gareth Humphreys and uh, Josh Lawson from Dead Northern. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so let's get into what else we've been watching over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to go first, and with this, I'm going to I'm going to place a wager that I'm about to claim the record for the longest film any of us have talked about on this podcast okay. uh, in our 68 episodes, uh, which currently I believe is held by uh, by Abel Gantz's Napoleon, which you talked about some on our. Uh, our guide to historical epics. I believe that's about five hours. Is that right? I can't believe you've. I've, I mean, I have my guesses as to what this might be that you've watched this longer, but because in my head I thought like, oh, maybe he's forgotten that I talked about Napoleon because that's pretty long. But turns <laughs> out you've you've done it. Yeah. So I over New Year, I the New Year period, I got permission to head into London uh, for a day, and I went to the brilliant Prince Charles Cinema, which is. Uh, yeah, it's a great cinema. If you ever get the chance, it's just kind of behind. Uh, it's in sort of Chinatown, just uh, behind Leicester Square, uh, for a full screening of Bellatar's 1994 <sighs> masterpiece Seven Tango. Oh, I'm so jealous. Which clocks in at 439 minutes, which is seven hours plus. That makes Abel Gantz's Napoleon look like an episode of The Simpsons. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it does indeed. Um, and strangely enough, so this is 
shows you, tells you what, uh, what kind of cinema the Prince Charles cinema is. So this started at about 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, the cinema was packed at this time in the foyer because not only was there a Sutton Tango full screening going on, but there was also, starting at the same time, a Lord of the Rings trilogy back-to-back, which was running for even longer. Oh, I love the Prince Charles <laughs> cinema. That's so good. God bless them. Um, <laughs> so those familiar with the podcast will know, I, you know, as, as, as you are, Sam, we're, we're very partial here to, to the art house. We're partial to slow cinema. And this has been on my watch list for a long time. Uh, but I, I, I've kind of always shied away from it because I really wanted to experience it in a cinema um, because, you know, all the distractions of, of home and having to interrupt it and, you know, just having to find seven hours at home is, is just never going to happen. So it was very special to see it uh, on the big screen and in, you know, a, a full house. It was, it was really good. Saturn Tango is based on the novel by Hungarian novelist Laszlo Krasnokarki. I believe that's how you pronounce his name, although it's probably not. Um, this is set, it's set in a Hungarian collective farm slash village. Although, and although it isn't stated, it's supposed to be at the, the sort of tail end of or after the collapse of the Soviet Union and of communism in, in Hungary at the end of the 1980s. So everything is utterly bleak and desolate. The villagers are downtrodden and depressed. And there's this pervading sense of boredom and despair and doom that hangs throughout the film. The film is it's split into 12 parts and they don't all flow chronologically. The main narrative arc is based around the villagers awaiting the arrival, apparently back from the dead, of the charismatic, charismatic uh, Irameus, played by Mikhailay Vige, who appears to exert a concerning amount of influence over them and who they look, look up to as this figure of hope or, or release from their drudgery. So yes, this is a, a black and white film in Hungarian with subtitles seven plus hours long, So and it's very slow. So I appreciate it is a hard sell. <laughs> and Bellatar reckons that, uh, so I've read, in seven hours, there are only around 150 shots. Some shots go on for well over 10 minutes. The camera remains still or only moving very slowly. But every shot is a thing of beauty it could be every shot could be hung on a gallery wall i mean because you it lingers so often your eye especially on the big screen your eye could just rove around all the details it's absolutely wonderful so even with with how slow it is somehow it still is able to create this sense of underlying tension and there's this so there's one part in particular with this with the doctor where there's this long unbroken scene with just this 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 old doctor just in his study and it just I, I remember at one point I needed to go to the toilet and I just I thought no I can't go what if he goes outside what if he has a conversation <laughs> with someone if it, it's creates that said it, the smallest things you're just like no that, that's kind of imbued with this sense of drama so you don't want to and I could see people were obviously having to go to the toilet at certain parts and just dashing in and then dashing back and kind of this sense you could tell the relief on their face when it's like the shots the shot still hasn't changed <laughs> it's fine um there are so many highlights so one in particular um there's a a 10 it must be at least 10 minutes unbroken shot of the villagers raucously dancing absolutely hammered in their local tavern uh, and apparently you know, they were actually drunk, um, and it goes on and on and on, and you just become completely nice. hypnotised by it. Uh, it's it's just 
it's astonishing. And, and there's a real sense of humour that permeates through as well. Um, you know, so there's parts of that dancing scene that are really very funny. Uh, there's other moments that are just oh, laugh out loud funny. As well as some sequences that are, are quite harrowing as well. So there's a long section where a young girl torments a very lovely cat, uh, which is quite distressing. Uh, and was mm. definitely eliciting some uh, distressed sounds from people in the cinema. Um, but so that's pretty distressing, as is kind of what then happens to the young girl. Um, but it's, you know, it's a film that is as close to perfection as possible, I think. I mean, the, the weighty philosophical themes that it deals with. So the character of Irimaeus is tremendous. It's such a complex character because the audience, you you were kept guessing about his true nature and his motivations. You know, he's he's intelligent, he's charismatic, he's perhaps symbolic of the political oligarchic class at that time who were promising you know, it's the end of communism and you've got all these people who are promising a brand new dawn for Eastern Europe and Russia while simultaneously, you know, with the other hand, ripping, ripping off, every, ripping everyone off and stealing everything. So he's, he's that kind of political figure that you see who's kind of, he whips up, you know, mere mortals, uh, he, he, you know, he's, he, uh, with his spell and, uh, and leads them on. But it's still, you're not, you know, he's not, so so clear-cut a villain you know you're still kind of thinking well maybe he is genuine maybe he is trying to in his own mind lead them to a, a better a better future so i can't recommend it enough it is an absolute masterpiece it is available on the movie platform but you need to see this at a cinema you know because of what i said at the top about you just you'd be distracted by too many other things and you'll never find seven hours to of your time in your normal you know, on an evening or whatever, you know. So you need to, if if you can find it on the cinema, do uh, you know? Everyone should should watch it at least once. I kind of, you know, I remember going into it thinking, well, I'm probably only going to watch this once. Yeah, I'm going to experience it, but it's not even been a month, and I kind of think I would really quite like to see that again. So uh, there we go. That's Sun Tango by Bellator. I've I've had this film on DVD for probably about maybe nearly coming up to 10 years now and still haven't watched it for all the reasons that you've stated of just every time I look at doing it, I'm like, um, seven hours is a lot of time to commit to this. And I'm speaking as the man that watched a five hour Napoleon biopic. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a daunting prospect, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm infused now by your rave reviews. It reminds me of, have you seen the other Bellatar film that the Turin horse? I haven't. That's his last film, isn't it? No, I've seen yeah. um, the, Rookmeister Harmonies, which is which it's is just, very good, but I've yeah, uh, not seen the Turin Horse. The Turin Horse is equally slow, and <clears throat> it just really reminded me. There's a bit where oh, you sneezed and the lights went off. That's amazing. Um, there's a bit where this old man is peeling potatoes for like fucking ages, and I had the exact same thing. So I was seeing it in the cinema, and I was like, I need to go for a wee, but I was like. What if he peels a potato really fast or like somebody comes in and peels a potato from him? And it's literally just him with no music, just like ambient wind, peeling potatoes. But I was like, how have we got to this point that I'm literally like more riveted than I was by anything in Avatar 2 by this man peeling potatoes? Avatar's really got you guys. He's, he's really, it's like a sort of Stockholm syndrome yeah. sort of thing where he knows what he's done. And you, you want to leave, but you can't. And you end up just sat there and you've, I've wet myself. I'm a grown man and I've wet myself. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't want to miss a potato getting peeled. Makes no sense. Is he going to cut them into chips or is he just going to put them straight in the pot? Is there going to be wedges? Who knows? I kind of assume that the experience of watching a Bellatar movie is not dissimilar to being in Scientology, where like 
from the outside, it sounds ridiculous. And everyone's like, why on earth would you get into that? But then once you're in it, you're like, this is the only thing I ever want to do. I only ever want to worship Xenu or watch a man peel potatoes and a doctor sit in a room. Right, Sam, what else have you been watching? Okay, so um, speaking of awards and the Oscars, um, I'm going to be talking about a film that's as large and replete with awards and awards buzz as its central character. Um, And of course, talk about Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, um, starring the awards-worthy performance from uh, Brendan Fraser, making his much-welcome comeback to the cinema. Just going to get it out of the way first and foremost. Brendan Fraser is absolutely fantastic in this role. Um, He is deserving of every single piece of praise that he's getting and yeah in my for my money an absolute shoe in for best actor at every awards he's getting nominated for he is fantastic um and genuinely without his performance uh this film would sink faster than um a dead space whale from avatar 2 the dampening um so it's directed by a director that if i'm honest i don't really care all that much about apart from his first two films pie and requiem for a dream uh darren aronofsky um, it's based on a 2012 play written by Samuel D. Hunter, who understandably has the writing credit for this film. It's a it's a simple story. Um, it's about Charlie, played by, of course, Brendan Fraser, who is a um, obese, reclusive online English teacher um, who has severe obesity and is trying to restore his relationship with his teenage daughter as his health begins to wane. As the film develops, you find out more and more about Charlie, um, his past, his frayed relationship with his daughter, his former partner, um, and all the things that have kind of led him down the path that he's currently at the end of. To go into like too great depth about what happens and the specifics is kind of to give away what makes this film quite nice to watch is it's kind of slow developing um, revelations and moments of intrigue where there's certain things that are hinted at that don't pay off until later on. Um, but yeah, suffice to say, stuff happens, backstory occurs, and Brendan Fraser continues to be fantastic. Um, so it's based on a play, which occasionally means that the film kind of suffers a little bit as a result. Um, it's kind of hard to escape the one-location filmmaking and some of the more theatrical elements of the story as it goes on. There's a lot of front door opens, character interacts with Charlie, character leaves, a different character comes in, interacts with Charlie, rinse and repeat, and so on and so forth. It's very much one of those films that, as a lot of adaptations of plays end up being, they're just a showcase for fantastic actors doing some fantastic acting. Um, The set design and the film's kind of general colour palette does a really good job of using the single location to heighten the claustrophobic elements of Charlie's apartment. And it does certainly close in on you as the film progresses. But Aronofsky's direction doesn't really do that much to kind of get away from the static play-like feeling of it. Another kind of slight negative is there's definitely some elements of body horror in how Aronofsky depicts Charlie. Obviously, he is a 600-pound obese man, but there's a lot of stuff that he shoots it in a way that feels quite grim and quite dehumanizing in a very kind of like grotesque way. At points, it kind of feels like all the great work that Fraser's doing to humanize his character and to fill him with empathy is undone by Aronofsky's desire to shoot him like an inhuman monster that's kind of to be gawked at and to kind of like, yeah, a sideshow attraction rather than someone to, somebody to be pitied. Um, like I said, because it's based on a play, there's lots of actors doing some fantastic performances. Sadie Sink, who you might know from Stranger Things, uh, is doing does a fantastic job as Charlie's estranged daughter, Ellie. She's standoffish, she's cruel, she's mean, but constantly hinting at something more bubbling under the surface. Um, a character that Sadie Sink has 
played to perfection and a few other things. But yeah, it's fantastic in this. Samantha Morton plays Charlie's ex-wife and there's a scene towards the end between her and Charlie as things are bubbling, which is some of the best like capital A acting you'll see. There's a character played by Ty Simpkins, who's like a Christian missionary that doesn't really do much for me. It was a bit one note and a bit cliched and felt like it was adding it in to make some points that could have been done in, in a better way. Um, aside from Brendan Fraser, Hong Chow, who plays Charlie's friend, who luckily is also a nurse that can help him out with his various ailments, seeing as he refuses to go to the doctors. Uh, she's the film's standout performance, aside from Fraser. She's fierce, vulnerable, empathetic, callous, and wonderfully human. She really, really shines and has some absolutely fantastic moments. Um, so yeah, it's a film that is entirely hinged on Brendan Fraser's performance. Without him, I would not have gone to see this film. Like I said, I don't particularly care about Aronofsky as a director, apart from those two first films he made. I feel like he's very much a law of diminishing returns director that I would not go and see it. I would not go and see a new Darren Aronofsky movie, but I was super excited to see Brendan Fraser in this movie. And he is fantastic. Absolute capital A acting. And yeah, deserves all the um, plaudits that he gets. And I'm hoping that this propels him as he is just to do back into the Hollywood mainstream and get some really juicy leading man dramatic roles because he is fantastic in this. And his performance just reminds you of what a great talent Brendan Fraser is from George of the Jungle to the mummy to the whale. God bless him. And long may Brendan continue to reign. So yeah, it's at the cinemas at the moment and I'm anticipating we'll probably do quite well for him around awards season. But it ultimately speaks of the film that Brendan Fraser is very highly nominated, but the whale itself isn't that nominated. So yeah, see it for Brendan and that's kind of it. Do it for Brendan. Do it for Brendan. Smashing. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Right. Okay. Uh, Bill, what else what have you seen? Yeah, so I, I stuck with the blue theme um, because I went to see Avatar 2. So I went to see, I uh, saw The Pale Blue Eye, which is directed by Scott Cooper and stars Christian Bale and Henry Melling. Um, so this is set in the 1830s and a troubled detective is brought in to investigate an apparently ritualistic murder that's taken place at West Point Military Academy. He's there, he is aided in his investigation by a young cadet named Edgar Allan Poe. Um, so this is a, it's a fictional um, telling of Edgar Allan Poe's time at West Point. So um, I'm a big Edgar Allan Poe fan and I've, I've read some biographies of him before and West Point was an unhappy time for him, but we never really got never really understood exactly why and he ended up getting dishonorably discharged on purpose um so this this plays fast and loose with the facts and imagines that some sort of terrible murder took place in west point and that's what that's what drove uh poe to eventually uh to eventually leave it's quite a perfunctory whodunit um it's the it didn't really grab me that side of things but it was very stylishly shot and produced and of course with it being a ostensibly like Edgar Allan Poe style story it's incredibly gothic which I'm into um Christian Bale does good work he's worked with Scott Cooper before on Hostiles which I've talked about on this pod which I loved um Out the Furnace um and yeah he's he's typically great um bail it gets a bit boring just saying about how, how good he is uh, playing this um very troubled traumatized detective um and he's aided and abetted by an amazing supporting cast uh, timothy spall robert duval toby jones and gillian anderson uh, all pop up and they're really memorable um 
the characters their characters are very one-dimensional but they're kind of brought in and they play it in such a caricature fashion that it really works and you know it's 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 poe so it's very on the nose gothic um sensibilities so that kind of works um yeah, as I say, the mystery never really grabbed me because I think Scott Cooper, the director, chose to focus more on the mood and the setting rather than the plot and the the intricacies of the plot. You're not really too fussed about who did the murder. You're more interested in well, what what sort of beautiful setting we're going to go next, what, what bit of poetry we're going to hear next. Um, the strength of the film and the joy that I got from it is from the strange buddy cop dynamic that develops between... Landor, who's Bale, and Edgar Allan Poe, who is played by Henry Melling, who uh, Melling played Dudley Dursley in Harry Potter and played a um, the disabled um, orator in um, Buster Scruggs, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, did great work in that. And yeah. this is his next, and I think it's his breakout role, because um, their interplay is really funny and then it develops into genuine empathy and regret and I've got to say Melling is absolutely fantastic with a capital swear word he plays Poe like some old mystic that's stuck in an awkward teenager's body and that really works like his voice sounds like this old man's and it just sounds wrong coming out of this young man's face but it it does strike the right balance because Poe seems like this otherworldly figure sent down but also very very awkward teenager Um, um, so he's he's pretty much mesmerising on screen, especially when he starts waxing lyrical, as Edgar Allan Poe was wont to do. Um, and and the way he it's it weaves the inspiration to many of Poe's stories and little sort of Easter eggs about if you know any of his books and his famous stuff and poems is fun. The way it weaves it into the plot, um, and it's a real fun Edgar Allan Poe tribute. And but I kind of wish even though Bale's really good, I kind of wish it had focused more on Edgar Allan Poe. Maybe if they'd just made it as a straight telling of Edgar Allan Poe's early life in West Point, it would have been a better film um, rather than devoting so much screen time to Bale, who's interesting, but Melling, the minute he comes on screen, you just, it's, it's electric. He is fantastic. And um, yeah, I think he's destined for great things. I'd love to, I don't think he'll ever be a leading man, but I think he'll, he'll, he's going to be a great character actor. I think he's going to be fantastic. Um, so yes, that is uh, The Pale Blue Eye and that is available on Netflix. If you've not quite got your fill of Netflix murder mysteries. Um, so yeah, that's, that's out now. It's, it's really nice that after, you know, 68 episodes of doing this podcast and, many more years of um, friendship to still find out about you. Like, it reminds me of when you were talking about Wuthering Heights and you were like, I bloody love Wuthering Heights. I never knew that you were a <laughs> huge Edgar Allan. You're a man of man of hidden depth. Yeah, it's in, funny, it's funny that never really comes up when we're chatting in Weatherspoons, does it? <laughs> I would have thought that you of all people would be like, oh, this reminds me of the Raven. He's, he was quoting <laughs> Nevermore over there. Unbelievable. <laughs> no, I'm too yeah. scared. I'm too scared at that point. The words are ringing around let, my head. You need to let it's that point out. the Rue Morgue. <laughs> Yeah, the telltale hearts beating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what cultured lads we are! We are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for listening. Um, that was uh, an array of of different and interesting films. Uh, I'm not going to say across the board brilliant because, uh, well, they weren't. They weren't. But um, <laughs> but interesting that again. In, in, <laughs> interesting that we've gone for predominantly new releases. Interesting. Yes. Uh, yes. Very new good. Year. Um, on our next episode, it is our 69th episode, and it coincides with Valentine's Day, the most romantic day of the year. 
so what better time than to sidle slightly out of our comfort zone and bring you our creaky chair guide to romance movies. Um, so that is what we'll be coming on our next episode. Uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Um, it's all about trying new things, Michael. You know, it's good to get out of your comfort zone every once in a while. Definitely, 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 definitely. Right, okay, well, thank you both very much indeed. Glad we got you in the end, Bill. And uh, we'll speak Speak to you soon. soon, everyone. Keep it blue, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast. If you like what you heard, it'd mean the world to us if you told someone about the show. Tell them about it even if you hated it. Or even if you just felt really apathetic about it. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad press. If you can leave us a review on wherever you're listening, that'd be amazing. And don't forget, we're on all of the social media things. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Bebo, MSN Messenger. And that's at Creaky Chair Pod on Instagram and at Creaky Chair on Twitter. And if you search Creaky Chair Film Podcast on Facebook, you'll find us there too. You can even email us at creakychairfilmpodcast at gmail.com if you want to send us your essay about how much we were well out of order with the ice road.